So as as we were mentioning, David, you know, there's this there's this great synergy, isn't there, between our two organisations, which has been really mind blowing for us to have the opportunity to sit within the the, the great variety of people that that, that work within the Beacon mm. is truly international. But I think last year when he gave us the opportunity to you know through funding to do this summer long good food festival and a really important part of that was that it gave us the time to do this really big piece of research work where we were wanting to understand and the city council about what people felt were the most important elements when it comes to well-being particularly around food and local food so you know, what since, good living means to yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. You know, what, what, what does it mean to to live well and live happily? And when we met you way back in February last year mm. at our first urban <clears throat> greening conference, right. seems a long while ago. It does. I was talking um, about cocoa then. Yeah, 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 you were. Yeah. And that was that was sort of kind of the first time we really became aware of each other. And um, what's evolved through that is this amazing. UK first, which is where a community organisation has, has actually authored a piece of planning guidance. And we were we could only have had that opportunity were it for the support that we've had. Then we had um, this belief that came from the city council that we could actually write a planning document, which yeah. was a bit woo. <laughs> um, but somehow we've done it. And now next week we've got the final session where people can apply what came out of this research and is now being formed into this framework and apply those elements to a real life brand new social housing development that's going to be going to be taking off this real stuff and whatever they come up with will actually be part of that real life plan i mean from an academic's point of view it, it does it feel quite exciting that you know your your relationship with that is, is actually doing something that's of national significance. Yeah, yeah, yeah Funds research then into practical. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's fantastic, isn't it? It's a dream. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the pathway, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the that's impact. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So no, I mean, I, I, yeah, I find I mean, I found this process incredibly rewarding, and and one of the things for me that um, I also have found fabulously fun is for me to kind of evolve my thinking from, you know, working from as well as a plant scientist, I think starting to think more broadly around food systems, starting to engage with you guys and start to think much more kind of around social uh, issues and, and food and food, equitable food access. And um, what I found also terribly interesting is then how, because, you know, scientists, particularly plant scientists, are very international in the way we work. And so we've, we've, tra- we've tried to bring that to the beacon and give clearly that, you know, food security is a, is a is a global issue and is, in, is immensely intertwined. So, you know, you might think that you're in Nottingham and you're working on your community garden, but actually, you know, there's similar people working on similar community gardens, whether they be in Peru or Chile or Brazil or or wherever that would be. And, and so there's a lot of fabulous learning to be made there. And so one of the things that I've really enjoyed over the last couple of months is actually working very closely with uh, actually Dr. Teresa Campello, who was a Minister for Food Security in the Brazilian government, previous Brazilian government, who's now part of the Beacon as a, as, a, as a visiting fellow. And I've been working with Teresa a lot, building strong relationships with the FAO, which is the Food and Agricultural Organization, part of the UN, 
Uh, and as part of that relationship, we actually uh, were in Brazil just a couple of months ago, actually in Salvador, in Bahia, uh, in the northeast part of Brazil, at, uh, at, a, at a conference that was jointly organized by the Beacon and FAO, which was focusing on uh, equitable access to food in urban environments. Uh, and we had, um, we had <coughs> delegates from all over Latin America, Chile, Colombia, uh, Brazil, etc. And we were all talking about the same kind of things <clears throat> that I was talking with you guys, excuse me, that I've been talking to you guys about Nottingham. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so uh, the you know, problem is universal. Uh, universal. And there's this, difference. Yeah, there's different, the it's fascinating. And so yeah. when I was in Bay, in Salvador, we actually went to a community kitchen. It's a community restaurant that actually serves 2,000 meals a day. Wow. Tell um, us more about that. Uh, was, it, was it a canteen style affair? A canteen style affair, yes. but what was fantastic, so it was in a low income area of Salvador, uh, and they served 2,000, approximately 2,000 free meals every day. Wow. What was great about it, not, well, so not only that's just pretty awesome to get, begin with, but it was a very holistic approach. So they worked with local farms to supply their fresh food and fresh the produce for the meals. They work with local um, colleges to have interns, nutritionalists working there to make sure the food's nutritious. And then they had a system which would actually allow to support the business development of the local producers so that they could actually scale their production and then start to supply in supermarkets and other things. So it was a very highly integrated uh, system which was not only directly benefiting the nutrition of the local people in the area, but was also benefiting the farmers and benefiting from the larger economic environment. Um, and so I think that... And feeding bellies. And fabulously feeding, yeah. yeah. So, and so I was, yeah, and so it just shows you that this problem is, is global, mm -hmm. but then there's also this kind of unity of approaches in some sense, which, which is great to feel like you're part of a global community. Yeah. And actually, I would love to be able to come up with ways to actually try to connect Nottingham more into that kind of global yeah. network. Let's do it. Yes, um, we're up for that. We're so totally up for that. I mean, but it is fascinating. The, 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 uh, I think one of the, the big issues that faces Nottingham is that we're so compact. Mm -hmm. We've got, you know, like two billion pounds worth of development currently going on. And one of the, you know, the whole reasons that we had to do the wellbeing design guide is how do you protect that when you've got an expanding population where we've got 70% you know, of people now living in urban centres, how mm. do we feed them? So it's this <coughs> thing, isn't it, where... And you have an issue of child poverty. Yeah, ab absolutely. You know, with, you know, weirdly enough, Nottingham is one of the, the poorest cities in the country. We look really shiny, there's great trams, there's new development. But it's Dickensian. Yeah. It is a tale of two cities. Right. You know, so on one hand, we've got this great booming stuff. I think Nottingham's now slated to be the fourth growth city after London, Manchester, and Birmingham. Is that right? Yeah, wow. yeah. So it's like, cool. And we've got focus. the youngest population, I think, of 15.9 years. Yeah. And an aging population as well. Yeah. So all these weird interconnections 7,000 kids who are obese. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we've got major problems, but we've got very little land. To play with, so the route we've kind of gone, gone down is, is is really thinking in a more permaculture way. Uh -huh. So, how do we make most of the vertical as well as the horizontal meter, whether whether it's horizontal, literally on allotments, or if it's on top of buildings, if it's growing in a space, or if it's growing vertically using you know more high tech stuff. And indeed, 
and this leads on to a bit that we, you know, we've, we've been working on with you about using the caves in Nottingham, yeah. which are 802, develop a completely different industry around mm. mushrooms. Yeah, that's great. Maybe cheese too, huh? Well, yeah, we, we need cheese caves, we need yeah, mushroom caves. These yeah. are very important. Preserved pork caves. Yeah. Sure. Yes. So I guess some salamis and bacon hanging up Ooh, and that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and what an impact that would have for the city around food tourism. Absolutely. To have an area designated to that. I and mean, it's fantastic. So there are lots of opportunities. But I think this issue of food deserts, yeah. what the Wellbeing Design Guide hopes to do is to plug those gaps as well at a hyper-local level. Yeah. And at the same time, connect people. Because people are isolated, as we mm -hmm. know, there's a growing issue. And it's about you know bringing people together to eat nutritious food and to grow it and to feel it and to see it and to share it, share it. Yeah. yeah. So I think yeah. So one of the things I think that excites me about this kind of collaboration is that you know, because food webs are so interconnected, you know, well, that's what we better we just call food systems. Then it's really important to take a food systems approach when you think about stuff because it's it's you know if you genuinely want to make an impact. It's easy to, well it's not easy, but it, it, it's tempting to, to do one thing that seems like it's a cool thing to do, but without really seeing it within a global, uh, not necessarily a global, within a system, it could be a, the local system, you, you know, you can't be sure that actually what you're doing is the best thing, right? Yeah, or that it's sustainable as well. Or that, yeah, and what's the carbon footprint? It may seem like using, you know, um, switching from, from, uh, Fossil fuels to electricity is a, is a cool thing to do because there's less emissions. But you know, where does the electricity exactly? Or, How is it made? Yeah, or you know, <laughs> vertical farm with lights. Well, it, that sounds cool, but where does the lights come from? Well, that's electric. And where did the electric come from? Was it a coal-fired power? You know, so so I think that one of the things that I, I think that, the, that we can we can work together on is this idea of trying to model those systems and really understand what, what are the pros and cons, right? Because you can't really do that just kind of in an ad hoc way. You know, it sounds cool, let's do it. Well, actually, let's just, you know, let's model this and understand what is the optimum, yeah. right? And what is the optimum not only in a particular system, but what's the optimal path? What's the optimal journey to get there? Because that's another thing that Great is point. not necessarily obvious. Right. Yeah. And if you and if you don't do that, then the risks of failure are so much very high. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And I think that's where a historical approach comes into. So one of the things that we have in the Beacon is we have this what we call a paleo benchmarking project, which is really all about learning from the past to inform the future um, in different ways. And I think you know that's so important. And actually, I've just finished reading a paper um, where. And I think it's really quite relevant here where people have looked at food transitions, mm -hmm. historical food transitions, yes. you know, like you know, the, the, the massive switch to poultry, um, the big uptake of milk in China. There's all these very well documented food transitions. Mm -hmm. And in this paper, they were asking the question, well, you know, what, what, what drove that? If we can understand what drove those historical food transitions, we can learn what are the tactics and what are the techniques we can apply to drive our food system in a more sustainable direction. I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, we're, we're, we're well, I'm saying we're, I am deeply obsessed with um, the history of, of food in Nottingham mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. maps, of course, are a fantastic source yeah, totally. of information. So there's, there's a particular map held by actually Nottingham Uni and uh, it's, it's this great picture that shows Nottingham in 1707, viewed from the east side, looking at St Mary's Church, which of course is this great, great reference point, because that's not changed. Mm -hmm. And what you've got is 
right in front of it, at the bottom of the cliff of, of Lace Market, is this massive food growing area, absolutely enormous. And round the outside of that are buildings. That's where the housing is. So there was this deep sense that there was where the food growing happened. Mm -hmm. You needed to protect that. Yeah. And of course, we talk about food sustainability now, urban agriculture as if it's the new thing, because it's always been there. Exactly. And then immediately outside the city, you've got uh, Woolerton Park, which was then Woolby Hall, which was a 500 acre estate. Mm -hmm. We've got the windmills, and of course our wonderful living legacy of Green's windmill. So you've got all these one, you know, these amazing living historic evidences yeah. that food and urban agriculture was was always part of daily life. Goosegate, you know, goose fair, all the sort of things we just think of as being fun and frolics now were deeply enmeshed in, in, in the social and economic and, and food life of people in the city. And I yeah. think it, it does it will do us a lot of good and of course an ant allotments. Yeah. 1837. Yeah. Still thriving. So it's using those incredibly valuable lessons and saying, what can we learn from that now? And how can we retrofit society yeah. to limit some of those things that, that work? <laughs> look, look, at, look at what like, you talk about, what, what can work. Yeah, exactly. And you know, those kind of projects are, you know, again, they're my academic and they're all entirely fundable. You know, for example, we've just got in the Beacon, we've just got a project funded by the Arts and Humanity Research Council with AHRC. Um, this is a project that's focused in Africa, but I think it's it's exactly what you're talking about, where actually the project's about looking at colonial area maps and descriptions of the geology, uh, geography of, the, of, of, in that case, what was in northern Rhodesia, to try to understand some of the traditional African farming practices. Um, and the project's all about, well, how do you, I mean, so it's really a strongly historical angle. How do you take a document which was written in a colonial time with a very strong colonial lens and try to deconvolute de that information to find out something useful now. So I think that this, these kinds of stories are fascinating. And I think this idea of looking at the local history around food um, is something that, you know, we should think about working on. Thank you for the bid. Thank you for the bid. ideas Oh, so don't, um, we, we've spoken briefly about um, your amazing five acre garden. Um, in America, and uh, in our person, we found that incredibly difficult to leave. I'm sure you did. But now you have your new growing space. Scale down slightly, yes. So tell tell us about the space you have now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and so, how it works. Yeah, yeah. So, how you tend to it. Yeah. So I mean, I've, yeah. So I've always just loved gardening ever since I was a kid. I had a little small part. We had a fairly big garden growing up in Manchester, and I always had my own little side of garden. And I remember as a kid going to my mum worked in the green grocers and I always remember carrying my prize marrow to the green grocers to show my mum and to show them the, the man who ran the green grocers. So I've always been super into gardening. And it's always been a, I don't know, it's one, I guess I, I was describing at the beginning that like we're very nomadic as a family and I've always been very nomadic, but I always do certain things when I arrive at a place and like the garden is one of those, right? So you set up your herb garden because the other thing I do is love cooking. I set up my herb garden, garden, I set up my veggie plot and it doesn't matter where I am, it's just been different sizes depending on, you know, how big the house is and how much money I was earning, but, you know, that's always the plan. So currently we live in Salby, um, just outside of Leicester on the Soar and great fertile soils in the Soar Valley. 
Um, we are actually probably, we probably live in the oldest house in the village, right behind the, the, the medieval church. Um, and so our house actually date the, the well, it's of multiple ages, but the oldest part of the house is probably Greek style, so it's like 1660s, 1670, with like uh, rubble, rubble, rubble built walls, granite walls, and then we've got various additions over time. The house also has the original bakery for the village. No way. Yeah, which is now kind of a storage cellar that we use for storing. I make my own bacon and things, that's all in there. <laughs> Um, and so the, 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 the house is great, and I'm telling you this, I will get to the garden because it looks from the outside, we're on this dead end little cobble street behind the church, it looks from the outside just like a fairly small cottage. Um, so it's like you see the first story which is made from the stone and then there's like a, a later addition on the top, like 1780, something like that. And that's all you see, and then there's like a big, a big kind of door double doors. But if you go through the double doors, uh, which are big carriage doors, and you kind of go under a little tunnel with this kind of ex an old, very old extension over them, then it opens into a big courtyard. And I've seen that courtyard is where the original, all the barns go down, which are now all refurbished and connected to the house. And then our garden then goes down onto the, onto the very, very, very edge of the floodplain. Um, and so that's why the soil's so good, but because we're, you know, we're probably on the, I don't know, thousand year floodplain or the hundred year floodplain. Um, and so our garden kind of goes down. So first thing I did when we bought the house, like three years ago was, you know, yeah, site my plot, dig it over and when it was massively overrun and everything. So I've got all that, spent the first year, you know, digging over, burning, clearing, clearing, um, and then kind of laying out my bed. So I have kind of one big bed, um, which I basically I kind of, this was main veggie plot, which I, I do kind of rotations on. Uh, and I pretty well grow everything you can imagine, really. Tatties, carrots, kale, um, yeah, arugula, all kinds of brassicas, beans. Yeah, you know, pretty well everything. Um, and it's interesting, my garden has kind of evolved over the years, as, as I guess as we all change. So originally my garden was very regimented. So particularly in the US, I had a, I mean, it was actually, because I had to produce a lot of veggies, because it was pretty well self-sufficient. In veggies in the US, and I had like three kids, and you know, it's like trying to feed teenagers. Well, they were there, they're grown men and women now, but so it had to be highly productive and fairly low maintenance. And so, I, in, in the States, I garden with a strip approach. So, I basically have strips which I cultivated, which were about two feet wide, mm -hmm. and then in between, and I and in the garden, that was a long garden, so that was probably 25 meters each long, each of the strips. And then I had like probably 10 strips um, and then between the strips I had a strip of which I like just grass which I could just mow um, and so I would basically kind of mow between the strips and then just heavily mulch the strips where and because I had sheep I could use the, the, the mulch from the bottom. So that was in the US so it was all pretty regimented. Uh, but now my my garden has now become much more um, a mixture of flowers and vegetables. So I have a lot of companion plants, yeah. so nasturtiums and marigolds, it and, <laughs> uh, and it looks great too. Yeah, so I really yes. enjoy that. Um, and yeah, some edible. So I have a lot of edible flowering mm -hmm. plants in there and stuff like borage. So it's a very different looking garden uh, as I've kind of aged, I think. Um, and then I'm going to experiment this year, actually. So, you know, one of the first things I always do is start growing stuff 
and then kind of narrow down on what works and what doesn't. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's what the will give you. Exactly. <laughs> and then, so, and that, so part, as part of my garden, I have a quite a nice flat part, but then it, our house is literally on the edge of the floodplain, so it, 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 there's like then a steep uh, kind of rise and then it levels off, and that's where the house is and stuff. Uh, and so I'm going to um, move some of this. So the squash grew really good. So I really was sad when I moved. Right, we're going on a long time. I apologize. Oh, no. It's uh, when I moved from the US, because it's super warm in Indiana, right? So I could grow amazing tomatoes, amazing squash. I couldn't do anything like that. I have to eat brassicas, tatties were good, right? So, but now squash are back on the menu. They do great in Salby. So my plan now is to grow my big summer, uh, the winter squash, the viney ones, up on the bank and let them just kind of pile down the whoa, back whoa, and that'll get them fantastic. out of the main bed so then I can grow much more stuff. Good so idea. that's the garden. I'm just putting up the polytunnel. So it's a 15 foot by 10 foot polytunnel, which I'm just putting that's up. It's a nice size. Uh, yeah, exactly. We had an old spot in the garden with it. We had a spot in the garden with an old pigsty, which our house is a listed, grade two listed building. So we had to get permission for that. It was falling down. They let us take it down. Uh, I kept the beans and stuff. I want to go make some totem poles out of that. But that's another story for another day. Um, and so we're putting up a big polytunnel. Uh, as we're going to put the skin on this weekend, I think. Um, and then I can get back into growing some of my favourite tomatoes that I used to grow in Indiana. Uh, well, things like German green. Uh, that's one of a uh, classic one and a bunch of other ones. Um, Ooh, that us see. Yes, I have at the moment. I have a terrible, terrible hoarder uh-huh. of seeds, and I, I love to get my seeds from the real seed. Company. Yeah, I get mine from the real seed. Oh, they fantastic! Yeah, yeah. But I have got so many packets of amazing <laughs> seeds. Would you like uh-huh. a packet of Russian? Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. I will get those for you. Yeah, great. This. Great. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Super. So that's yes, very short version of my garden. Yeah. So yes, that's that's absolutely absolutely have a big herb garden too, we're weird. We're Love herbs. Well, I mean, herb, herb, you know, if you've got tomatoes, bit of pasta, yeah. and you've got some amazing, you've got some that's just a feast. Yeah. Or potatoes, yeah. and you've then, got some herb, yeah. you know, And then you've got olive, so my sister's an olive farmer in Greece. No way! Yeah, absolutely. So, wow. so you get the best. So I have real olive oil. <laughs> real olive oil. <laughs> pressed, oh, super nice. spicy, cloudy. Organic. We, we love your life. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's a tad vicarious, but it's absolutely amazing. And 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 just just in the in the in the final few minutes that we've got, it, it um we'd just like to get your view on what role local food systems have to play because obviously not a good food partnership, member of sustainable food systems network. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I've seen kind of figures bounced around that you know the optimum amount of food that cities can provide for its citizens is only about 15%. Do, do you agree with that? I mean, what, what role has local food systems got to play in how we how we feed people now and in the future? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think it, so it depends what you, what part of um, food production you're talking about, right? So I mean, if, if you're talking about, you know, cereals, grains, that's tricky. That happens thing. outside the city. Yeah. I mean, that's always happened outside the city. I think it makes you know it makes no sense to do that in the city unless you want to do some kind of small scale growing of ancient wheat. Unless we can take over the whole of Waterloo. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So I Bring think so. I think for that, I mean, I think it makes no sense. Um, I think w- within the urban environment, I think you've got you know a much better chance of vegetable production. Yeah. Um, and then depending on uh, you know what those are, I think you know leafy vegetables, these kinds of things. I think probably. 
an equally important, if not more important aspect of, of kind of urban agriculture is just making, connecting people to food production. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, a direct connection. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so and um, we will then change, you know, alter our, the way that we make food choices. Exactly. That, yeah, and it the changes the demand, right? I mean, I yeah. think, you know, I just briefly mentioned before the article I was just reading, you know, one of the key aspects of changing a food system is changing consumer demand. Absolutely. And that's a that's a tough thing, but it's totally doable, right? So, I mean, you look in, you look at China, they never drank milk, now they drink tons of milk, right? So, so there's, you know, poultry was never eaten very much at all in Japan, now they eat tons of it. So you can change consumer demand. The question is, you know, what mechanisms do you do for that? And I think that going to eat this, it's healthy for you, is never going to work, right? No. But if, if it's more about Wow, I had a lovely time on the allotment. Exactly. I picked this tomato. Maybe you don't have enough tomatoes to cover you the whole year and canning them and using overwintering varieties and all this kind of stuff. But you then start to think, well, actually, I'll make better choices. Yeah. Right. So I think that part of it is equally, if not more important, than just replacing production. It's also about simplifying our diet as well. I mean, I was just going to say that diets are just so overcomplicated, yeah. aren't they? Mm. We have so much choice. Mm. So if you minimise the choice and, and, and plan meals differently and take a walk down you know, the road where there's some local shops, rather than going straight to the supermarket, yeah. we, we, we will shop differently. Yeah. I started doing that a lot more and it's surprising what you can get mm -hmm. and then how you examine what you're eating and neighbour food, not in the same, the yeah. similar thing. And, and forage, yeah. you know, huge amounts. But education is key, yes. isn't it? And sharing that that joy with people, you know, taking people out on a forage. You absolutely. Oh, I'm so passionate about it. But it blows people's minds mm. when they go, oh, you mean that weird bush thing? Yeah, that's just going to give you intense jam with a ton of vitamin C and it's naturally infected. And it just opens up people's Especially minds. When you put in history. Yeah. You put the context of yeah. the plant into play as well. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's fascinating. Plus, I think air miles are key, right? So, I mean, I think as people start to understand. You know, it seems so obvious to us, right? But like, you know, food is like produced, it's grown, right? And and people start to understand where things come from. And if they have an allotment, they start to understand, well, what can you grow and what's the seasonality? And you just, yeah, you just can't grow an, a, you know, an eggplant, an aubergine, you know, uh, here if you don't have a polytunnel. So when I go to the supermarket and it says this eggplant came from Yorkshire, that's weird. How, yeah. did, how, did, how does that happen, right? And then you start to think, well, well, there must be in a greenhouse, right? And then heated you, greenhouse. Yeah, it's probably a heated yeah. So it's like that's all kind of complicated, right? And when you're just in the supermarket, you don't think about those things. Then you know you just buy that eggplant. Oh, I need an eggplant. I'll get it, right? And oftentimes you'll go in, and I, you know, I see this all the time now. People are like, oh, look, that's from Yorkshire. That must be better than coming from Spain. Well, actually, you better off getting your eggplant from Spain because it was grown in Andalusia where it's warm. <laughs> and yeah, they may have been shipped here, but I'm sure if you did the calculations, yeah. you would find that the carbon footprint was much less. So well, this is complicated, point. right? It's very but complicated. When people are growing stuff themselves, it, they start to understand, like, I just couldn't grow that in the winter last year when I tried. So they did. So I think that's a really big part of it, is and the education. Of this. Oh, yeah, because the then people start to like the seasonality, right? Because then they're like, oh, I'm looking forward to my strawberry patch. Yeah. And getting those strawberries from, you know, that came from Morocco, they didn't, I know why they didn't taste great, yeah. you know, because, yeah. but I think, yeah, you can't just, you can't just drop people there. You've got to, there needs to be a journey. I think that's a personal journey. Yeah. 
people have to go or on. a community one well, you know but yeah well it takes a village right i mean i yeah, think it's, it's always better going on a journey with a friend right oh definitely well thank you thank you so much for joining us today yeah, it's been a pleasure you're a very very busy man and we are absolutely delighted that you've, you've made time for us well, We're all busy, that's not a problem. Well, we are. We, we prioritise what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And we, oh yeah, we really, you know, Future Food Beacon, continue for many years and prosper. And, and we, you know, we just, we just really look forward to being on this, on this journey with you guys. It's been absolutely amazing and is amazing. Great, well, it's been great. Look forward to being back on with you. Oh, on another yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. Down the line, yeah. Let's have an update. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. So next week we've got our guest Alex Baird. We have lovely Alex. Alex. He's triage officer. Oh. Or officer? <laughs> What's one of them? For the council. It's a bit like a tree officer, but it's similar. Yeah. That's the one. Thank you. With news that the city is planting 10,000 trees. At least, we hope. At least, yeah. yeah. It's pretty top, well, very topical. Let's hope a lot of them are edible. Yeah. Alex is the main man at the moment in, in that regard. So we will be hearing about his passion for trees and what role they play in our changing climate. So listen out for the trailer next Wednesday and simply search for NGFP Local Lunch on your browser. And you'll see us pop up, and we will see you next and we Wednesday are, and Friday. And we are all over the place now. Yes. I think it's about eight different platforms Great. where we're at. So thank you again. Thank you to David. Yes, thank you, David. Yeah, and we'll see and you next week. Thanks, Penny, for lunch. It's gorgeous. Oh, my pleasure. Take Bye. care, guys. Bye.